name is Michael Tuck, and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Watching this past week, I was watching the special on uh, Chadwick Boseman. You know, he's the young actor, 44, died of colon cancer, uh, was in the movie, the, the the Black Black Panther, I think it was called. Some other, he played 42, Jackie Robinson, did some other really kind of regal roles, if you would, in cinema. But anyway, I was listening to this uh, tribute to him, and people were... And they were talking about him and his kindness and his goodness and his gentleness. And I mean, they were going on and everybody that came on the screen was saying the same sort of things about him. And it, and it hit me or I had this thought. I said, man, I wonder if, if Chadwick was a believer in the Lord Jesus to have so many people speak of him in such kind and glowing words. And sure enough, so I, I looked it up and I found out that he was a follower uh, of, the, of the Lord Jesus. And um, in some ways, that's the message of First Peter. That's, that's going to be the overall message, I think, of this book, in that Peter is trying to say to us, this is how we, as followers of Jesus, should live. And so I'm calling this, this study of First Peter, I'm calling it, you know, living the kingdom life now, living the way God wants us to live now. Now, I've pointed this out pretty regularly over the last years, actually, that God's plan for Israel, the reason God chose Israel or made them a nation and called them his own nation, the reason for that was he expected that in their relationship with him, they would be so different that the rest of the world would take note of that and say, we want to know this God that's your God because of how different they would live. Now, you know, that didn't work out. They didn't live that way. They, they did not follow the Lord the way the Lord wanted them to. And uh, so things have changed, but God's plan hasn't changed. Maybe the people through whom God is working today are a different covenant people. They're people made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have followed Jesus, but the basic plan hasn't changed. God's desire, and you know this because I've shared this many times and it's central to us as followers of Jesus, but, but God's plan is that we as his people will be so different that the rest of the world will say, man, we want to know why you're the way you are. Why are you so kind? Why are you so compassionate? Why are you so good? Why, are, why, why do you prefer others over yourself? Why are you not selfish, but you're selfless? Why are you the way you are? And that gives us the opportunity to say, hey, listen, we want to tell you about the God who is, you know, the God that maybe you've, you've rejected, the God that you've uh, hardened your heart towards. You know, we want to tell you about him. And, and so our lives are supposed to be so different that people want to know about this king that we follow. Now, today as we begin this journey in 1 Peter, I want you to kind of mark the book. It's a small book. It's only five chapters long. I think it has 105 verses. It'll take you about 30 minutes to read. So I have a suggestion for you. And my suggestion would be, why don't you read the book of Peter every week? And over the next two months as we go through it. So every week you come in here with a fresh reading of First Peter. It won't take you but about 30 minutes. You could do it at some point during the week. But And if not that, if that's too much, then uh, let me encourage you to read the chapter or the verses that are coming up each week. Since you've already read them several times during the week. And in your mind, you've become familiar with, with those verses. Now before we actually jump into the text, we're going to go through verse 12 this morning. And this is going to be kind of a, a little bit different kind of way of presenting the text and I normally follow. We're, we're going to kind of do just a textual study and we're just going to walk our way through the text in just a few moments. But before we do that though, let's, let's answer four basic questions about, about First Peter. The first one would be, who, who wrote the book of First Peter? Well, it's obvious, right? It's the first letter of Peter. So, and it's Peter. It's the apostle, the disciple of the Lord Jesus. It's the, the big fisherman. If you listen to, uh, if you listen to Dick's uh, little messages during the week, he's the fisherman 
that's the professional fisherman when Jesus, who isn't the professional fisherman, tells him what to do, right? But he was the professional fisherman from Bethsaida, and, and he was a follower of Jesus, and he was, if you would, maybe by de facto almost, he was the leader of the disciples uh, that followed Jesus. Jesus would change his name and call him uh, Peter, which means rock or small stone, and he went from Simon to, to rock, although Peter really didn't live up to his name at first, though I would suggest that by the end of his life, he was indeed living up to, uh, living up to his name. He's the writer of this letter. Now, to whom was the letter written? This is going to be a little bit more in detail, but let's look at verse 1. In verse 1, it says, uh, Peter, an apostle of, of Jesus Christ. Then it says, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, those areas are what was known then as Asia Minor, what would be known today as Turkey. So those, those places to whom Peter is writing, uh, or the, those people in those places, that would be in, in Turkey. And Peter calls them uh, the chosen. Now the chosen are, you know, and we'll get to this in a minute, but by, by chosen, Peter means those who are believers in the Lord Jesus. Now unlike most of the New Testament letters, so many of Paul's letters were written to a church in a particular geographical zone, right? So the church that was at Corinth or the church that was, well, Galatia is a zone, but the church that was at Ephesus. So he would write to specific churches. Now, all of his letters were most likely meant to be read to lots of people, not just to that one particular church. But in this particular case, Peter is saying, I'm not writing to a church. I'm writing to the chosen. I'm writing to believers all over these area, these areas of what would be known as Turkey today. And uh, most likely the people to whom he's writing are the people who came to know Jesus under Paul's first missionary journey. And, uh, and so this is really, if you would, a letter to the mission field by the apostle Peter. So before I move on though to, a, to another question, uh, another main question, let me kind of ask a couple of other questions about this particular issue, about who he's writing to. He calls them chosen. Why does he call them chosen? And how did they get that term? Who are the chosen? Well, there's two main understandings among Christians as to who the chosen, how they got that name and who they are. So let me share them with you. And, uh, and you can decide, you can do more study on this as to what you believe. But, uh, but some people believe that the chosen means a group of people who were individually chosen by God for an, a reason unknowable to us in order to save them from death and give them eternal life. And this group of people is chosen from the masses of humanity and they are given faith so that they might believe and thus be saved. So the chosen ones in this particular understanding are not chosen because of their faith, but rather they're chosen by the secret will of God and they're given faith so that they might believe and might be rescued from, from death. So that's one understanding of what it means to be chosen. The other view would be this, and, or the other understanding would be this, that it wasn't individuals who God chose, but it was really Jesus who God chose. And God chose Jesus to be the one who would come and, if you would, redeem us from our death, or he would pay the penalty of our sinful rebellion so that we could indeed have eternal life. He would come to rescue us. So verses like Isaiah 42, 1 that says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Or Luke 9, 35, Then the voice came out of the clouds saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Or 1 Peter 2, 4, So you have come to him a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and priceless in God's sight. Luke 23, 35, And the people stood up looking on, and even the rulers sneered at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself if this is the Messiah of God, his chosen one. So in this understanding, Jesus was chosen before the foundation of the world to be the Savior. He was chosen before God did anything to be the one who would come and rescue us. And everyone who places their faith in him, places their faith in Messiah, or places their faith in this chosen one, is now considered to be chosen because they are in the chosen one. 
In this understanding, faith precedes the choosing. Libertarian faith, a free choice on our behalf. We choose to put our faith in Christ. So those are the two understandings. Now, Peter goes on to say three things about being chosen. I'd like you to note them. Look at your verse in the Bible there. It goes on and says, chosen, how are we chosen? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, first thing that Peter says about us being chosen is that we're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We're chosen by what God knows ahead of time. Now, let's go back to those two views that I just shared with you. And obviously, I, I would hold one over the other personally, but the church has been divided for since the beginning, almost, since around the year 500, we've had these two perspectives on what it means to be chosen. But, uh, but in this first understanding of chosen according to the foreknowledge, it, it, the understanding is this, that God, by his foreknowledge, chose some people that he was going to save. He foreknew who he was going to save, and he decided to save them. By his secret will, he gave them faith, and they believed in Jesus, and they are the ones who are being saved. They are saved. They were chosen unconditionally by God, not by faith, not by anything else, but they were chosen by God, and God gave them faith, and they believed. So when it says chosen by the foreknowledge, it simply means they were chosen beforehand, before God, by his, by his knowledge. Now, the second understanding would say that the foreknowledge of God refers to God's macro plan, the plan that God is working. And that plan, of course, that God is working is that God is working a plan to build a kingdom where Jesus is king, and he is building a kingdom in which men and women from, from all generations, from all ages, and I don't mean ages as far as our chronological, I mean, I mean from all the ages, from all the epochs, right? He's building a, a group, a family, a kingdom from all the ages, men and women, anyone who will put their faith in the Lord Jesus. So in this understanding, and it's not individuals who are chosen by the foreknowledge of God, but rather it is that we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God's plan. In other words, God foreknew from the very beginning that he would choose Christ before the foundation of the world. He knew that he would send his son, his son would be the chosen one, and all who put their faith in him would belong to him. So we are being saved today by the foreknowledge of God, by God's foreknown plan that he was going to bring about. This is not an afterthought. Jesus wasn't sent by God as an afterthought to somehow rescue us. From the beginning, God knew that Jesus would have to come. So let's go on, though. The second thing that Peter said there is that we're chosen by the foreknowledge of God, but we're also chosen uh, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, from here on out, both, both groups understand this to be the same. Now, we are placed in the chosen one by the work of the Spirit, regardless of what you believe about how the choosing takes place. Paul would agree with this. Paul would say in his letter to Corinth, he would say this, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, we were all given one spirit to drink from. Peter adds another piece to this sanctifying work of the spirit. And he says, we're sprinkled, we're sprinkled with the blood of the Lord Jesus. And he's talking there about how the spirit is the one who washes us and cleanses us of our sin. See, Jesus dies for us, and, and Jesus atones for our sin by dying for us. Remember, the, the wages of sin is what? Death. And Jesus does what? He dies for us, right? So he pays our death. The Spirit is the one who, if you would, sprinkles us with the work of Christ, to use his term. And that's, by the way, that is, a, that is an atoning terminology. You'll remember that in Israel, back when, when the sacrificial lamb was killed once a year, they would go into the Holy of Holies and they would sprinkle the blood of, of the lamb on, on the altar. So that's the terminology that Peter's using here. Christ's blood, Christ's death has been sprinkled on us by the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's the work of the Spirit who is washing us and cleansing us with the work that Jesus did for us. Now, here's what that practically means for all of us, okay? Here's the practicality of that. We aren't saved by our own efforts. We're not saved by, 
by somehow reaching some standard of morality or, or following to some level of goodness. And so therefore now God says, yeah, you've, you've done enough. Now I'm accepting you. No, we're, we're saved from our death to come. We're saved from that by the work of Jesus. It's nothing we do. It's God's work credited to us by the Spirit. It's the work of Jesus being credited to us. It is God who adopts us. It is God who transfers us into his kingdom. And it is the work of the Spirit who saves us. But, if I would just add, he saves us in response to our simple but effectual and efficacious faith. Those are some big words. But what I mean by that is it is our faith that God uses to determine whether he will put us in his son or not. Verse 5 says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith. So it is our faith that God uses to apply the work of Jesus to our lives, that the Spirit uses to apply Jesus to our life. People often say that if you claim that God responds to our faith that begins in us, then we are saving ourselves. I hear that a lot. In other words, if you follow that, here's, here's the logic. Hey, if, you, if God is responding to a faith that is initiated in your heart by you as, an, as a libertarian agent, if that's true, then you are saving yourself. But folks, that's simply not true. If our faith could save us, then Jesus would need not have died. You follow me? If faith, if faith alone could save us, then Jesus would not have needed to die. But Jesus needed to die because faith does not save us. Jesus saves us. But God applies the work of Jesus to us through our faith. He had to atone for our faith. Besides, Paul wrote a book called the Book of Romans where he spends a great portion of that book defending the truth that faith is not a work. Faith is not us working. Faith is us responding to the work of God. Now, the third thing that Peter says about us being chosen, he says, you're chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. He says, we're chosen by the work of the Spirit, or we're, we're chosen through the work of the Spirit. But thirdly, he says, we're chosen to be obedient to God. The Spirit works not just to apply the work of Jesus to us, but we're, we're chosen now. The Spirit's still working in us. We're chosen to be obedient to the Lord Jesus. We're chosen to be faithful to him, to live holy lives. Now, let's be honest. Can we be honest for just a minute? It's really hard to live a holy life, isn't it? I mean, the pull of our flesh is really strong, especially when our emotions are entangled in it. You know, there, there's something flawed and fallen in us that, that makes it hard for us to live this, this life of perfection that God desires of us, of, of sinless perfection. It makes it hard for us to do that. And, and God knows that. You know that. I know that. We, we know that living perfectly is, is an impossibility to us in this life, in this, in, this, in this body, in this life that I now live. It's impossible for us. However, however, the Spirit is at work in my life, and He is wanting to transform me, and He's wanting to change me. And, and, and though I may have setbacks and I may fall, the goal is progression unto holiness, and, and that's what Paul, that's what Peter says here. We were chosen to be an obedient people to God, and we shouldn't take our disobedience lightly. We should take our obedience seriously. So the book of Peter was written to the chosen believers all over Asia Minor. When was it written? Question number three, when was it written? We don't know for certain, but probably after A.D. 64, because, and I'll talk more about this as we go along. In fact, I'll talk about this in just a second, but, but there's an underlying theme of suffering throughout this book, and so out this letter. And so most people think that it was after Nero burned Rome in 64 A.D., when he blamed the Christians. If you know your church history and actually world history, Nero, when he burned Rome, he blamed the Christians. And after that, persecution erupted all over the Roman Empire against believers. They were, they were tortured and 
hung up on post and set on fire with pitch. And it was just, a, it was a terrible time for those who followed Jesus. Most people believe that it was probably written after 64 AD and Peter's writing it to address the suffering that, that our brothers and sisters went through back then. Why was it written? Uh, we find a partial answer in verse six of chapter one. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And so, you know, Christians were persecuted. They were persecuted because they were an affront to the immorality of Rome. They were an affront to the idolatry of Rome. They were an affront to the paganism of Rome. And they were an affront to the emperor worship of Rome. I was listening to something just last night on, on the history, on, on, on church history. They were talking about how the Roman Empire tolerated the Jews. It tolerated the Jews because their religion was monotheistic and, and they, would not, they would not bow to the emperor. And so Rome made an exception for, for the Jews. And then the Christians come along and, and, of course, you know, at some point they turned against them and probably again after 64 AD. And then there's this typical greeting that, that Peter and Paul and them, you know, make to the people they write. It says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. And if you just think about it, well, you know, that's what we all want, isn't it? We all want grace, the power to, to live uh, the way we want, the way we should live. We want that grace of God in our lives. We want God to be gracious towards us. So he's just simply saying, I mean, it's perfunctory, isn't it? But that's exactly what we all desire, grace. And then the other thing is what? Peace, peace be multiplied to you. Man, we all want peace, don't we? I mean, one of the hard things about what we're living in this time right now, politically and everything else, is there just doesn't seem to be any peace anywhere. COVID has taken away our peace, our comfort of going to the store or, or even how to come into church, you know, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask. And am I going to offend somebody, etc. So, I mean, we, peace has really been ripped away from us. So we all want peace. And that's what Peter says here. He says, may, may, may grace and peace be to all of you. So even though it's a, a common greeting, like we say, how are you? And we say, fine. Even though it's a common greeting, there's, there's something really deep about that greeting, peace and, and, uh, and grace. So now let's, let's look at the text itself. Okay. We're going to, we're going to go through verse 12 and hopefully we'll, we'll move right along this. And I hope you'll find this interesting. And more importantly though, I hope that God's going to speak to your heart. So like most of the letters in the new Testament, uh, Peter is writing to encourage his readers with the truth, with truth about the Christian life. So the first part of this letter, chapters one, and maybe through halfway through chapter two, it's really going to be a lot of kind of just truth about the Christian life. All right. But then we're going to get into some practical application of that in the second half of the book. But, but under, underneath all of that and interwoven through this whole letter is this theme of suffering because we suffer in life. I mean, nobody gets through life unscathed. Nobody gets through life without pain and suffering. All of you are going to suffer. If you haven't suffered already, you will suffer. And, uh, and so under, under, underneath all of this, Peter's going to be talking about, about suffering. He's writing, if you remember, to the chosen that are exiled, to the chosen that are living as, uh, what's it called, refugees almost throughout the, throughout the land of Asia Minor. Um, I just recently read the book, The Lost Boys of Sudan, of the Sudan. I, I'd recommend it to you. I got it from uh, Stan Cole. And in this book, it's about a young man who basically was one of the lost boys of the Sudan. He lost his family. He would eventually find them again. But it's all about his journey of living as a refugee. And, and here's what I want to say to all of us that are listening. Most of us, just about every one of us, none of us know what it's like to live the life of a refugee. Okay? Having read that book, we, you have no idea what it's really like to live the life of a refugee or an alien amongst people that don't like you and don't want you there. We, we don't know that. But that's the people that he's writing to. In this case, there are brothers and sisters who are, are feeling like they're exiles, are refugees in, in Asia Minor. Hopefully this is going to be an encouragement to you. So let's walk through the text. Beginning with verse 3, the first thing that Peter says to his readers and he's saying to us today is, bless God, guys. Bless God. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter wants them to walk away from this letter blessing God, just being... God, I, I just, I love you. I want to lift you up. I want to, I just want to exalt you. That's how he wants them to walk away from this letter. And I want us to do the same thing. 
Okay? I want us to do that today in, in particular as we walk through these particular verses. Now, why does he say that I want you to bless God? He says it because, he says, because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope. So Peter says, bless God because God has given you this, this, uh, this new hope, this living hope. He's birthed it in your lives. I've told you about Frankel, uh, Victor Frankel several times, but he, uh, he wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, and he was a refugee, or he was in the concentration camps, and he was a psychologist. And one of the things he argues in his book, after all, after being in the camps, he says the loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on men. And he said that one of the things that he noticed in the concentration camps was that the people who died were the people who gave up. The people, obviously, you know, the Nazis killed lots of people that didn't want to die. But, that's not, but the people who would just lay down and die, they were the people that gave up and had no hope. And he would say, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. In other words, giving him some hope for the future, that it could be different, that it could change. So Peter begins, he says, bless God because God has given us this living hope. Now by living, I think he means this. It's an ongoing hope. It's a hope that we're going to have for the rest of our years. It's, it's the hope that I'm going to have, hopefully, <laughs> till the day I die. Right? And, if, and if my death doesn't take me by surprise and I have to walk into it slowly, I'm hoping, I'm trusting that that hope that I have will, will carry me through in those, in those days. Now, how has he given us the hope? Look at verse 3. He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. One of the songs we kept singing, Ronnie, I think it was the second one. I mean, it kept making this point that it's through the resurrection of Jesus that we have this hope. Now, I've talked to you about this here not too long ago, so let me use some big words again. Jesus' resurrection is both, both epistemologically helpful to us, but it's also ontologically helpful to us. In other words, we get this hope both in both of those ways. Remember those big words? Epistemology has to do with how we discern what is true. All right, the study of what is right, what is true, what is real. Now, the resurrection of Jesus gives us hope because it's, it's epistemological. What I mean by that is it it convinces us, it proves to us that God exists and that Jesus is God because he rose from the dead. You follow that? So, so the resurrection is a way of proving to us that, that God is real and that God exists and that, and that God sent his son Jesus to die for us because God raised him from the dead. So there's a way in which it, it proves to us what we believe, okay? But it's ontological, meaning that it's the, the essence of what it is also gives us hope. And by this, I mean that. I mean, I mean this. <laughs> Boy, I'm getting tongue-tied. But here's what I mean by that. Because Jesus rose and lived, and the life that he had in his resurrection was different than the life that he had prior to his death. Remember, he's the first fruits of those who will rise again in the future. That's, that's how we're going to be. And so Jesus' resurrection gives us hope because we get to see what we get to be in our resurrection. And so when Peter says that we have this hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, I, I think he means both of those things. I think he means it proves to us that it's real, that we're going to rise from the dead. But it also proves to us how we're going to be different, what we're going to be like in the resurrection, how we're going to be like him in his renewal. Newell having risen from the dead. So what is, here's the, next, next, here's the next ongoing, I'm trying to follow the logical questions that Peter's trying to address. What is this living hope we have? Well, Peter calls it an inheritance. Look at the next verse. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. When a person is born into a family, they're born into an inheritance. They get something because they're born into this family. Now, you know, having been born into the Acre family, at least my Acre family, you don't get much, all right, of an inheritance, all right? But if you were born into the Bill Gates family, you know, or the Ezos family, is it Ezo, Bezos? What? 
the Bezos or whatever, yeah, the Bezos family, you're going you're to inherit something if you're born into that family, right? Well, we have been born again into the family of God, and with that comes an inheritance. And, and, and Peter says, you know, this, this living hope that we have that's ongoing because Jesus has risen from the dead, proving it and showing us what it's like, what it's going to be like, it's an inheritance. We get an inheritance in the future, all right? We get something in the future. Now, New Testament writers talk about this inheritance a lot. Here's Paul. In him we have also received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. The Holy Spirit, verse 14, this is from the book of Ephesians. The Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. In other words, the Holy Spirit is the down payment until our resurrection. That's what he's saying. The author of Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 15 says, therefore he is the mediator, talking about Jesus, of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. We, we get this inheritance that's coming. He doesn't, really, doesn't really specifically tell us what it is, although I think we probably all know what it is, but he does tell us this about it. Look at the text. It's imperishable and unfading. You know, uh, you know, the longer your parents live, the less your inheritance is going to be. And have you all seen that bumper sticker that says, hey, I'm out here spending my kids' inheritance. You all seen that bumper sticker on the back of a, of a $100,000 RV, right? You know, so, um, but our inheritance isn't perishable. It's not getting less. It's not fading. It's not diminishing. It's not defiled, meaning it's not going to be corrupting, getting worse and worse. And, you know, like metals, they, and they, over time, they oxidize and they, and they fall apart and they rust. Well, our inheritance isn't anything like that, he says. And then he says it's kept for us by God in heaven. That doesn't mean it's waiting for you in heaven, everyone. That means it's kept for you in heaven. It's guard. That term kept is, a, is like a, a garrison guarding something. God is guarding for us our inheritance in heaven where he is. And that's why Jesus spoke of storing up treasures in heaven where nobody can steal it from you and nobody can, and rust isn't going to destroy it. The moth isn't going to eat it. Talking about their treasures back then, clothing and maybe silver or whatever. He, he's saying, let God guard it for you in heaven. Don't store it up here where you're going to lose it. I might keep my valuables in a safe deposit box, but I don't live there. And that's what he's talking about. He's talking about God guarding our valuables in heaven with him. When do we get this inheritance? Look at verse 5. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation. Oh, there's what our inheritance is. A salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Now here, here Peter defines it a little bit. He calls it our salvation, a salvation. But here he tells us when we get it. And we get it, it's to be revealed at the last time. Now, the last time throughout the Bible is always referencing the return of Jesus. It's always talking about the culmination of history and the beginning of God's kingdom. And that's, that's when our inheritance comes. It comes at the resurrection, excuse me, at the return of Jesus in our own res resurrection. So often we think of our resurrection, I mean, our inheritance as coming when we die, but that's not what the scripture says. The scripture says our inheritance, even our salvation, is inex inextricably linked to the return of Jesus and our resurrection. In Romans chapter 8, Paul ties our adoption and our hope with the day when God raises us from the dead. Listen to Romans 8, 23. Not only that, but we ourselves who have the spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. Now in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, because he who hopes in what he sees. Now if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait with it for uh, for pay. Uh, we eagerly wait for it with patience. I'm sorry. So, bless the Lord, he says. Bless the Lord because God has given you this living hope. And this living hope is in an inheritance. And this inheritance is coming to you. It's your salvation. It's undefiled, not fading away. And it's coming to you at the return of, of the Lord Jesus. Now, 
Let's go on to verse 6. Rejoice in this, though now we still suffer. That's what he says in verse 6. Rejoice in this. So the first thing that Peter says for us to do is what? Bless the Lord. Now he's saying, hey, everybody, rejoice in this. Rejoice in what? Rejoice in this hope, this hope of an inheritance that you have. Rejoice in it because it's coming. It's, it's, it's guarded by God. It's undefiled. It's ours. We will never, ever lose it. So rejoice in this. He goes, but even though right now you suffer. Let's look at verse 6. You rejoice in this even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer griefs and various trials. So the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which through per though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you not seeing him now, you believe in him. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now here Peter tells them, he says, guys, you should have great joy, inexpressible joy, glorious joy, because at the end of your life, you get this thing that God has given to you as an inheritance. You get salvation. You get the salvation of your life. The word soul in that text doesn't mean the immortal part of you. It means you get your life. That's what that Greek word means. It doesn't mean the immortal part of us. It means we get our life. The goal of your faith is that you get your life. Your life is resurrected from the dead and you get to keep your life now forever, never to die again. Now when we die, there may be this sort of disembodied life in an intermediate time. There may be that, okay? We, we all believe that. But... But what Peter is saying here, he's not talking about that. And this is something that I do want all of you to change on. Don't put your hope in the intermediate period between your death and the return of Jesus because that's never where the Bible puts its hope. We as preachers and we as hymn writers, we put our hope on the intermediate state. But the hope of the New Testament is at the return of Jesus and the establishment of his kingdom and the resurrection from the dead. When we follow the one who was the first fruits risen from the dead. And that's what Peter's talking about here. He's talking about our resurrection. We receive the goal of our faith, which is the salvation of our lives through the resurrection of the dead. We will rise again. Peter says, though we have not seen Jesus, nonetheless we love him. And though we, haven't, we don't see him now, nonetheless we believe in him. Why? Because we have faith. And what is faith? Does anybody remember? Faith is the conviction the assurance of things that we don't see, but this absolute confidence of things we know to be true. And how do we know them to be true? Because we look at creation all around us. We, we listen to the inner, inner workings of the Spirit who tells us what is right and who tells us that Christ is Lord. And we look to the resurrection of Jesus, which is epistemologically telling us that Christ is God because he's risen from the dead. Y'all following me here? And so because of that, we, we believe in Jesus. We love him, though we don't see him even now. In the midst of that, Peter tells them some things about suffering. Look at them with me. He acknowledges, he acknowledges that though we rejoice with exceeding joy now at what's coming, he says, he says that you suffer now. You know, I shared this in my email. I shared it this morning on social media, so forgive me if you've read it several times. But one of the things that God has shown me lately is that joy and suffering... It's, it's, suffering is not a, a linear thing as far as how it plays itself out in my life. In other words, we tend to think, okay, I'm suffering now, but if I just suffer through the suffering, uh, it'll eventually turn into joy and the line will go on and I'll, and I'll be having joy and I'll leave the suffering behind. I think Peter is telling us, and it's been my experience anecdotally, that the line of suffering and the line of joy, they're two parallel lines in our lives and they go on together in our lives and I think they will until, until the new kingdom, until Jesus removes all suffering and all tears and all death. And so always in our lives, there's gonna be this line of suffering. I mean, and that line is darker at times, 
It's fainter at times, but it's always in there. And I think that's what Peter is saying. Though you have exceeding joy, there's this joy line in our lives as well. And sometimes it's darker and sometimes it's lighter, but it's always there. And these two lines run in our life. And we should never forget that. We should never forget that God has never promised us, at least in this life, he hasn't promised us, I'm going to remove that suffering line. I'm going to, I'm going to take that away. You're never going to suffer again. Some brothers and sisters are wrong about that when they try to tell you that's how it works because that's not how it works and it's not what the Bible teaches us. The line of suffering will always be in our lives, but so will this line of joy and there are parallel lines running right by each other and that's exactly what I think he's talking about here. Does anyone here doubt that God's people suffer and that God's people have sorrow upon sorrow at times in their lives? Anybody here sorrow-free your entire existence? You know, I kind of doubt it, especially if you're over two. And if, and if you're under two, or if you're two, you've probably got a lot of suffering on your rear end. Hopefully you'd have, anyway. Peter goes on to say that our suffering has a notable effect. It proves the character of our faith. Nothing proves the worth of our faith more than suffering because it proves, it proves that it's there. It, it's proof that, it, it actually, that I actually do have confidence in God, that he loves me and he has an inheritance for me and that he's walking with me. That's what my suffering does when I continue to walk with him. And then he compares our faith to gold. And he says, faith is more valuable than gold, but it's refined by the same thing that gold is refined. Gold is refined by fire or heat, right? And so it burns off the dross and the gold shines brighter when you get rid of the impurities. And he says, that's what suffering does to our faith. It burns off the impurities of our faith or it burns off that stuff, that extra stuff. And the fire is suffering. And then he says our faith is more valuable than gold because it results in so much more. It results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. So here's what that means. It means if you follow Jesus and you have walked in faith in the midst of suffering, at the return of Jesus, your life is going to shine so much greater in praise and uh, in glory and in honor of Jesus when you have loved him and served him and followed him in the midst of great suffering. You know, in our suffering, in our suffering, we, we suffer loss, we suffer hurt. But you know, we as followers of Jesus, we don't have to suffer like so many of our brothers and sisters are suffering even today around the world, being put to death, losing their livelihoods. I mean, it's, 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 becoming, it's, it's, it's becoming epidemic, especially in Africa, around the world. In the, in the Middle East, our brothers and sisters are being just systematically killed and tortured and tormented. How much greater will their, their praise and glory and honor be of Jesus on that day, having been refined by so much suffering? And then once again, Peter returns to our salvation, and, and this will be quick. Look at verse 10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that would come to you searched and carefully investigated. They inquired into what time or what circumstances the spirit of Messiah within them was indicating when he testified in advance to the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them, the prophets of old, that they were not serving themselves but you. These things have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Angels long to catch a glimpse of these things. Peter tells them that a long time ago when the prophets were prophesying these things, man, they, they longed to understand times. They longed to understand exactly what they were saying about Messiah's suffering. They didn't really get it. They didn't know when it was, be, when it was going to be. But it was revealed to them that it wasn't for them, but it was going to be for people far off. Now, probably Peter may, not necessarily probably, but maybe Peter has in mind Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12, you remember that he's getting all these visions of things in the future about Messiah. And, and then the, the, the person who's revealing them to Daniel says, shut these things up. 
Because these things are not for now, but for a long time from now. Even though he's asking when they're going to be, that's what the angel tells him. And then in that same, in that same vision, there's two angels that are asking the same question, and they get the same answer, that it's not for them, it's for a long time off. So maybe Peter's thinking about that, but what he's saying is that these prophets who wrote of all of this stuff, they longed to understand it, but they didn't. They understood that it wasn't for them, that it was for a long time off. So when Isaiah wrote something like this in Isaiah 53, he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities, punished for our peace. The punishment of our peace was on him. And we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. All have turned to our own way. The Lord was punished. The Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. Isaiah didn't understand that. It wasn't written for him, but it was written for Peter's listeners, and it was written for us. It was written for generations after, after Isaiah wrote it, and we understand it today. When David penned Psalm 22, I'm a, I am being poured out like water, and all my bones are disjointed, and my heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me into the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People look and stare at me. They've divided my garments amongst themselves, and they've cast lots for my clothing. David didn't understand what he was writing. He wasn't writing for himself. He was writing for Peter's listeners when he wrote them, and he was writing for us. That's what Peter says to them. He says things they long to know and understand. You get to understand them because men of God have preached to you the good news, and now you understand Isaiah 53. Now you understand Psalm 22, what God was doing. And Peter's suggestion to them, hang with me, hang with me, I'm almost finished. Peter's suggestion to them is that, guys, you have been so privileged, so privileged because you get to understand what the prophets wanted to understand, but they didn't understand. That what they even said, but they didn't get what it meant. They wanted to, but God said, no, it's not for you. It's for a generation to come. He says, you are so privileged because you get to understand it. And then in case they've missed his point, he says this, things that even the angels long to understand. Things that even the angels of God long to understand. Sue, if you wonder where Sue goes, I'm going to tell you all. Sue leaves a little early because she's playing for a sister church in our community. So she goes and plays, plays for them. So that's why she leaves a little bit earlier. But years ago, Sue used to always do these musicals. She used to lead us in these musicals. And Sherry Atkins was here, and Sherry would design them. And we did this musical one time. And the musical was from the angel's perspective. Some of you old-timers that have been here for a long time, you'll remember this. We were all in the old chapel. We had the choir of angels sitting in the left-hand side up in the corner. We built the stage. So they went all the way to the ceiling, and they were standing up there. And they're singing down their perspective on what they're watching with the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And they're not understanding, but then they get it at the end after it's happened. It was one of the most moving ones we ever did. My point is, my point is that the angels, they didn't understand all that God was doing. They didn't, they didn't understand it. God evidently kept them in the dark, if you would, at some level to what he was doing. But, but today, like Peter's reading, readers and like us, we get to understand it. We know the angels now know what God is doing, what God is doing. So here's my invitation, and I'm closing with this. Here's my invitation for us this morning. In light of what we've just studied, bless the Lord. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and everything that is within me. Glorify his name. Why? Because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope of an inheritance that's coming, a salvation that will be forever undefiled, not passing away, reserved and kept for us in heaven for that day. Bless the Lord with me this morning. Then rejoice. Rejoice with exceeding joy because you have life. You have eternal life now. Though you die, yet you shall live, and you shall live and never die, and you belong to the Lord forever. 
Rejoice with exceeding joy, even though right now you may suffer and right now your sadness may be great. Rejoice, rejoice greatly in the Lord. And then be grateful. Be grateful that you have lived in a day, and again, I'd be grateful to live in any day, but be grateful that you've lived in the day where the revelation of Jesus has, is past for us. We get to look back on what God has done, looking forward to what God will do. Rejoice and be grateful for the things that have been revealed to you. Be grateful that you live in a, in a country, in a place where we can come without fear and we can look at what Peter said and we can understand it. Be grateful that God has revealed himself to you and me. Let's pray. Father, taking our cue from our brother Peter, that, that, that fisherman that was boisterous, maybe speaking without thinking sometimes, but who became the rock or became a rock on which, you know, many people came to rely upon. Lord, taking our cue from him, Lord, we bless your name this morning. We bless you because you are worthy of our praise and our worship today for all that you have done and all that you are doing and all that you will do. We bless your name, Lord, because you are, by, by your foreknowledge and plan, you are leading us to a kingdom where your son sits on the throne and will be king forever over all the earth. Lord, we bless your name for that and for so much more. And we rejoice, Lord, that we have been included in your kingdom. Lord, by faith, by the work of Jesus, by the work of the Spirit, Lord, we belong to you and we are part of your kingdom. And we rejoice in that. And though suffering may come, Lord, we rejoice nonetheless. You know, the, the parallel lines, you know, Lord, we will always rejoice even in the midst of our suffering. And Lord, as, I, as I'm praying now, I do want to take a moment just to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world that we read about day after day, email after email of how they suffer and how they are being killed. And uh, Lord, would you, would you just pour out your spirit upon our brothers, give them the grace to endure their great suffering, even as they rejoice, Lord, in the living hope that they have of the inheritance that is theirs and ours in Christ. So Lord, we pray for our brothers and sisters this morning. So, Lord, help us to bless. We bless you, Lord. We rejoice and we are grateful. We are grateful today for, for how you've revealed yourself to us. We're grateful today for uh, just, you know, the, the ease by which we can come and worship. And thank you for this. We recognize it as an anomaly in history, as a bubble in this country. We thank you for it. Lord, would you preserve it, we pray. Again, we bless you, Lord, because you and you alone are worthy. We offer our praise to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing locally here in Surrey. Be blessed. Be blessed.